welcome. I'm Andrew Dice. And I'm Stephen Colbert. And this is Zack Snyder's Justice League by the Minute, part four of our first pass through the movie, part by part, before entering into our, yes, you read that right, minute by minute breakdown of the entire movie. Part four of the film, I will say, has a massive amount of scenes and sequences, uh, just even aside from the fighting and that, that I was watching this and thinking, I cannot wait to have the excuse to watch this a minute at a time so that we get to talk about all these small beats. Yeah. Things in this section of the film, like J.K. Simmons as Jim Gordon, mm-hmm. I don't have a ton to say about it like now, but I know that that's going to benefit big time from watching it a minute at a time and, and having <laughs> making ourselves talk about him for a long time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think this this minute is interesting because and we fell prey to the same kind of thing in, in the beginning of BVS by the minute where we kept on being like, well, last minute was interesting, but this minute's really interesting. It's like, okay, maybe they all are. If we're looking at the other, the, the first two chapters and we kind of talk about how they develop stuff and kind of get story out there. And this one like takes up to 11 in terms of what I imagine some people would probably flippantly refer to as exposition dumps, but I feel like is executed far more artfully and uh, uh, effectively here than than simple exposition dumps. But man, there is a ton of explicit and inferred story in this. And a lot of it is the kind of story that is the biggest talking points of the movie as well. Anytime I make a comment about exposition dump, I need to like make the exception, except when Chris Terrio is writing it and Zack Snyder is directing, because that is just like watching theater. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, let's let's get into it. Part four, change machine. They're change machines. The boxes don't think in terms of healing or killing, alive or dead. Contrary to what many of the listeners of Batman v Superman by the minute will think, this is my favorite title for a part in this film. <laughs> and I don't even think it's close. Like, this is hands down. This is my favorite. Yeah, and we will... Um, I don't think, like you said, it's not one of those things that we are going to break down as much in this minute, but the, ne- the the fact that Silas calls it a change machine, and that's how they kind of dumb down what a mother box is, like, for the sake of, here's what the scientist that interacts with it co- refers to it as, is something that is so full of kind of full of meaning as far as what Silas understands about it and what they, what the mother boxes truly are that uh, I think we're going to come back to a lot when we try to explain what the mother boxes are and what they're doing throughout this section and the rest of the movie. From the kind of higher angle, like the previous parts were about introducing the heroes and then kind of setting them into motion. This is very much the part where they literally, everyone comes together, you know, and everyone comes together First with with Jim Gordon, you know, on the on the roof of the GCPD, and then we get Aquaman coming in later, and then it's like, hey, we're all a team now. We're just missing a guy. That really is what this part is in terms of the team plot. Mm-hmm. I am looking forward to. I mean, there's not enough of J.K. Simmons as Jim Gordon for me to say anything intelligent until we get into this because it's like from the first photo of him. Yup, <laughs> you got me. He's great. This is, this is a no-brainer. He's going to bring exactly that. I think this scene is one of those ones where it's really... Gordon is an interesting introduction because you almost forget that he's not even in BVS. Like, that's how naturally he fits into kind of what they're doing here. Not that there isn't any other ties to BVS or anything like that up to this point. But if you look at the like what this movie is compared to BVS, on paper, a lot of it almost doesn't fit. Like, the idea of 
Flash and Aquaman and the team and the tone and the humor and all that kind of stuff. Like the notion of this rooftop scene, if you if I were to be watching like Batman brand Caesar Santos in BVS and you're like, oh yeah, by the way, the next movie they Flash and Cyborg are on the rooftop with Diana and Bruce talking to Jim Gordon, I'd be like, oh that's I'm like, I don't know how they get there from here. Not just the inclusion of Gordon kind of fits with that, but the fact that they show up and, and Gordon is like, how many of you are there? I think is kind of the, like, speaking of Terrio exposition, that is like a line that kind of ties it all together. And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, these two, like these universes, this Batman universe they established in the last movie and all these characters and everything coming together. You give this new Jim Gordon, but it's on a, you know, a familiar setting, familiar characters, and it kind of all just clicks for me in that moment. It is a scene for Vic to show up and say, hey, we got to go. We got to go find this parademon nest and Stryker's Island, which I always get thrown because I think the photo says Stryker Island. Well, and then also in the theatrical cut, it was weirdly uh, Braxton Island. Yep. Just why not? My only assumption is that is that Whedon changed it because maybe changing the name of a location is... Uh, more impactful um, on the story when the script is reviewed by like the DGA as opposed to just changing dialogue because simply changing dialogue doesn't qualify as um, has as story impact. And so you might, so like, for example, he rewrote basically every line of dialogue and speed, but didn't get credit for the screenplay because they said it didn't have any story impact, but he did get a screenplay credit on this, which makes me wonder, like, obviously there were significant story changes, but I wonder if some stuff like that, he kind of cheated for the sake of, oh no, I changed that completely. It's not Stryker's Island anymore. It's Braxton Island now because of a line of dialogue. That's the other thing is that it, it Stryker's Island was in BVS. And so I don't know why they would need to distance themselves from it. I don't know. It's one of the, it doesn't make any sense. I shouldn't try to find a logical reason for it. Where this parademon nest is, this tunnel project between Metropolis and, and Gotham, which they head off to. And I would be doing a disservice to these moments, like even brush on them now, because it's just going to be like them jumping out of that, the nightcrawler. Oh, are you kidding me? Climbing up the stairs. Oh, are you kidding me? You know, the ambushing, um, the the Steppenwolf and all that. I mean, this this whole sequence is like, well, God, I was going to say middle of the movie action sequence, but we already kind of had one in, with the Amazons. But this is the action sequence that's definitely the league, the league starting out. And it is rad, mainly yeah. because like the moment that sticks out to me in this uh, that I do want to call out is the stare down between Steppenwolf and Diana. Yeah. I mean, that's just that that sets the tone for so much of this action and the movie, I think, from here on out. In my notes, I was like, I think we're going to gloss over a lot of the tunnel battle just because there's so much like how much do we want to like really break down like beat by beat any specific action scene? Yeah. One of the specific notes that I have on here is the um, the rack focus on the axe handle. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And just hey. his little the flit of his eyes. Yeah, well, just because <laughs> well because it's it's one of those cinematography things where it's like it's calling to him and it but it directs the focus to the handle but it's 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 from Steppenwolf to the handle and then and then it rack focuses back to him again which is is so great just because it's a great shot in and of itself but also you know as, as I'm watching that I'm like oh man this is going to be like 90% of Army of the Dead <laughs> <laughs> Yeah how how much of the storytelling and characterization here is done by like Snyder's eye. 
yeah um for this kind of stuff and and the how diana loves that it's happening yeah and well, um that's and followed actually, up with that sick like the the shot of her doing the the flip on the lasso oh man well which is funny because that's another spot that was repurposed in the theatrical cut so that she was doing um oh, what was it i can't even remember now but she was save she was the flip up onto the onto the onto the walkway was different split right it was like separated yeah you and didn't it, get to and see it the entire swing and all that it wasn't as cool it felt more like sh- it was like um they, it was a controlling a retreat or something of that nature and this is very much like oh no i'm gonna face off against steppenwolf here yeah <laughs> the other interesting thing i noticed because i was thinking about the the rack focus on the axe handle is just how much it's, it is throughout the movie several moments in in the whole in the tunnel sequence where there is some stuff that where they play with focus in that way like when when uh, Batman's gun the grapnel gun slides across the the catwalk and he goes to grab mm. it they play with focus in a way that feels like a bit of an evolution for for Snyder or like where he leans on it a little bit more maybe than he he has as much in in um like with Larry Fong and a lot of his other movies um I don't know if that's a Fabian Wagner thing or or not but um, like I said, with, you know, that being such a big deal for Army of the Dead and then obviously, you know, later in the movie with the reshoot scenes for where he used the dream lens, we get that, too. But it very much seems like we kind of are witnessing in a, a stage in the transition of Snyder's kind of eye for focus. Yeah, I think the the in the discussion of the aspect ratio, one of the things that doesn't get discussed is how much more he can play with with focus. Mm hmm. Yeah, too many too many examples to say here, but I mean, Alfred's gauntlets working. Like, I don't want to do all of this stuff to service or imply that we don't love it because we're going to be gushing over all of this stuff when we go, you know, bit by bit. And the Batman fighting the Parademons, which was one of the first things I think that got teased mm-hmm. from from Snyder and everybody getting their moments in this fight. But everyone, I think, I like it because they are not yet cohesive. It yeah. feels more real. That's of the of the comments that I wrote down to to say like how do we talk about this without talking about it for twenty minutes? Do they do a good job? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and they kind of like luck out a bit. Yeah, because it's a it's very much a did they get into this impulsively? I mean, I guess they saved the scientists. Like they didn't fail, but I think you get an early tease of that like they're not yet a team and you even get that with the um you before they jump across the catwalk at the beginning they say like diana says um i think we do this together is is that where she says that yeah and then flash runs across and (laughs) even just the way that they cross the 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 chasm there is a a good example of like showcasing the individuality of each character they each have a different way they get across they're very it's very much a like oh right we've actually kind of got for loners yeah this is going to be very awkward to watch and it is definitely like there's no i mean it it obviously pays off in the third act when, when that thing when it does come together right well because because cyborg jumps the gun to charge steppenwolf and then diana goes after him because she's like not going to miss out on a fight um but then all and then also she knows that something happened on themiscara probably that she's wants to get to the bottom of and get revenge for and then you even have flash who just outright says like this, guys this, this is not, not together yeah i mean and his his shove is is such a like oh right this is actually a disaster what's happening right now 
Yeah. Uh, this could get everybody killed. And then, wouldn't you know it, almost does. Yeah. Uh, except that we get uh, yet, it, it turns out five loners is the key ratio you're going for because we do get Aquaman showing up. And it's a team up that is not pomp and circumstance, right? This is not a victorious moment. This is a like, oh, thank God yeah. that this has happened. And we will have a lot to talk about, like how each of the characters reacts to different things and how they, how their team cohesion develops over this fight, which will be super cool because it'll be over the course of like weeks. Well, I think one of my big praises for the movie overall, especially compared to other superhero team up movies is the the way each character gets its own gets their own moments to shine, but then also how they do character pairings at different moments. Everybody helps everybody at different times. I haven't actually like written it down to 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 see if I'm correct in this, but I'm pretty sure every like every combination of like two characters doing something together in both dialogue and in action is utilized at multiple times. Like there's no two characters where you're like, oh, I guess they don't really ever interact together. I think this is one of the kind of early indications of that because you've got you've got you know Diana and, and Cyborg charging early, but then you've got uh, Batman and the Flash, and that uh, hanging back with the Parademons, mm-hmm. uh, then Flash saving Wonder Woman, and then Wonder Woman saving Flash, Cyborg saving all of them, and then like you said with the Aquaman, Aquaman showing up was something I was really interested in leading up to the movie because in the theatrical cut, he shows up in the exact same way. But it always felt like completely random that Steppenwolf blows a hole in the side of this thing and and then Aquaman is just there and we don't know why. It was interesting because it happens exactly the same way in this, but there's two differences that make it not feel like, wait, how is he there right now at the exact right timing from one having more of his backstory and to like know where he is and what he's doing and why. And that sort of on, like they told him, go get our mother box back. Like that's your job to hunt it down. And then also the editing just breathes a little bit more. And so yeah. making his appearance not so sudden. So like he, he shows up and he kind of hovers in the jet stream, which is cool. The fact that he's like sitting still as the water is gushing past. And then, uh, and then he comes out for, you know, for the save there. But it's interesting how that's one of the many examples of something that happens exactly the same way as it does in the theatrical cut. But just a little bit more context and a little bit more breathing room. And it turns something that's like basically laughable into something that kind of sings. Thor landing on the Quinjet into, um, oh no, this actually, this makes sense for his character. There are two parts left in this as it pertains to these characters. One of them is the team when they regroup. But before we get there, we get our, our big dose of apocalypse. A Steppenwolf, we learn, is called out of this fight, basically to come back because the mother boxes themselves have something to show him. If you're not paying attention or, or don't have any like working knowledge of what these mother boxes are, this makes the power dynamic seem very weird. Mm-hmm. Mostly because it's unsaid. It's not like unexplained. I feel like it's alluded to definitely in the history lesson. And you kind of learn by just watching at this point. I think the big question for me that this scene brings up is, wait, so Steppenwolf, is not here like for Darkseid or on behalf of Darkseid and Desaad. Obviously he's in communication with them, but they didn't send him to earth. And so it's right. It's like, where was he before he showed up in Themyscira and what was he doing? A mother box called to him. We know. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that's, that's what I think this moment sort of fully shows us is like, wait, he is 
just kind of executing the will of the mother boxes, it seems like not the will of obviously that is the will of Darkseid, or he wants it to be the will of Darkseid, but he is he is here because the mother boxes like yanked him from wherever he was. Now they are showing him something else. Um, and like they are kind of calling the shots. And now this is the moment where he realizes, like, this is why they brought me here. Yeah. And I think that that adds an element in here that isn't explicitly explained in the movie, but also is contrary to... It's a context that people didn't expect. I think people expect that, like, Steppenwolf was sent by Darkseid and is just Mm. kind of reporting back. There's a much bigger story going on here. Yeah, like, it makes Steppenwolf feel way more small. And, like, he's a loner in so many ways here that I don't think it was... um, assumed before you know before we kind of realized like oh wow he's like just the mother boxes are like bossing him around here yeah i like i like what this adds and this will be one of the things that i'll really enjoy getting into is that steppenwolf comes out of this seeming like very much a a person of faith like a person of devotion Mm -hmm. very strong conviction and like belief by by the mother boxes uh, showing him this vision that was Darkseid's, discovering anti-life here on Earth, and the boxes are saying like, hey man, anti-life is here. This is the place. It implies a lot more about like the mother box's connection to anti-life. Like what is anti-life now that it is something that this weird blend of magic and science is interested in? I know that we'll have, I don't have very concrete ideas on that. And BVS by the minute has convinced me that when we get to this, we will come out of them with some really cool ideas that probably never even occurred to us. But I do love me that Steppenwolf closing his eyes and opening them. And he's (laughs) uh, once again in a fantastic sequence where his now, as we said, disgusting many thumbed hand goes digging through the dirt uh, as Darkseid did. But And the VFX here i think to take a moment to like praise weta the face acting that steppenwolf does is just insane i think it is uh, absurd the yeah. eyes and the there's a moment where he like swallows a lump in his throat and like his eyes well up and i don't know how much of that is based on kieran hines face capture versus like weta manipulating things he does have a good face for that but then also like even the hand in the dirt is very much a I look at that. I'm like, is that a rubber prosthetic? Like, it's 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 the kind of CGI that's so good that, or maybe it's not. See, maybe it is a prosthetic. But I I sometimes you know how CGI almost looks looks like a puppet when it's more realistic, not in a bad way, but because like your brain knows that it's not real, but what you're seeing yeah. looks physically real. And like the way this it's interacting with the, of the dirt. This is our part of the podcast where our cursory view turns into I want to talk about the weight. That his hand slams into the dirt. Yeah, exactly. Well, and you're like, is that, I don't know what's more impressive to animate the hand that well, or because my my brain then says, wait, is that, is that real dirt or is that animated dirt? If that's animated dirt, that's also really good. And even if it's not, there's some sort of practical, they drug something through dirt to blend the shot. Like, I don't know, like, I can't wait to get, um, hopefully we'll get like, uh, DJ, some other people <laughs> we'll on at some point. You'll be like, Hey guys, what do you want to talk about? Yeah. So was it real dirt? I mean, <laughs> but I feel like that's the type of thing that someone like that would want to talk about, but I'd, I'd definitely, I'd love to talk to some VFX people about how they, how they go about engineering some of this stuff because yeah, who's yeah, your dirt I mean, guy. <laughs> speaking of dirt though, it is interesting 
and I think this is something we'll go into more on a on the minute by minute approach. But the idea that the the anti life is written into the into the earth, and the yeah, way he, he drags he his it. hand through yeah. the dirt here, and then he holds it up and he drops the dirt, and then Darkseid did the same. You have to go back and reference Lois dropping the dirt on the coffin, scooping up the dirt, yeah, at the end of BVS. And wonder, I don't know if there is a, if there is a, I think there's an intended, you know, visual symbolism of some kind. But the question to me is like, is that, is that um, like the dirt floating is still a big question that even this movie doesn't answer. And so what I start to wonder is like, is that like the codex and the anti-life relating to each other in some way? Or is that anti-life reacting to Superman? Or is that, or is it totally unrelated? I don't know. But the, the. The the fact that the dirt reminds me of what happened in BVS um, when Lois yeah. drops is it, there, I think, feels relevant. Is there sentience or sapience to the anti-life that is recognizing something? Yeah, well, we know that this movie establishes uh, Krypton and Apocalypse, similar technology. Let's, well, yeah, we can, we can, we'll can we have time to get into that. The most important thing is Steppenwolf decides, I got to use my alien wall phone <laughs> my, I'm gonna, I'm gonna call this like my um, lava phone to call up first Assad, because look, Darkseid's got to find out about this, and then we get the arrival of Darkseid himself. You're not gonna talk about the Latin. Oh well, we'll get to that. <laughs> uh, the fact that Desaad speaks in Latin to refer to Darkseid opens up a whole big door. We have a lot. Oh we're, man, we're, we're not gonna get into like the te- what was it, the Templars. Uh, assassins, ancient aliens theory of this. This is not, there will be no hollow earth discussion on this podcast. So we've got to wait, we got to wait like two years then before we can yep. just, okay. In two yep. years time, we will have a discussion about the the significance of Desaad speaking Latin. If the Apocalypteans in a time before time spoke Latin, then the causality of that Omega symbol, meaning what it means, uh, kind of gets flipped a little bit, but all credit in the world to Ray Porter as Darkseid and the many artists, you know, behind the scenes who made this a reality. Because from the moment he growled, oh, Steppenwolf. <laughs> These characters don't need to say anything other than each other's names. Yeah. <laughs> like we've had Mighty Steppenwolf and his like calling Dasad. You know, it's like this, the power dynamic is clear. Darkseid coming in here is... I can't wait to talk about, is this actual, genuine feeling that we're seeing from him? Or is there a sense of performance even in the character? Is this really the place that completely ruined my reputation and humiliated me? Uh, You know what, if it is, you go ahead and kill everybody. Yeah. And then I'll come in here and I'll get my prize. And I'm I'm amazing. I think, like you were saying about how just the way they say each other's names gives so much kind of backstory... And this feels like maybe a, a bit of a reductive comparison, <laughs> but also I think is is kind of emblematic of of how well I think these characters and their, and their dynamic resonates is how immediately after the movie came out, people started making like office memes with Desaad and Steppenwolf and Darkseid of like assistant to the Lord of Apocalypse <laughs> and like yeah right yeah. <laughs> all that all that kind of stuff and because it's so. Like it does have that level of like the hierarchy and the history and the the jockeying and the politics is kind of all 
inferred not just in the in the words and the writing of Chris Terrio. This is this is Peter Guinness, Karen Hines, and and Ray Porter who all crushing it. Just yeah, I mean, what a powerhouse of vocal talent. And then, but you've also got some interesting stuff going on with with Steppenwolf too, like the way he immediately. I mean, we're talking about his face acting already and the emotion and like the eyes welling up, like when he's he's like, yeah. "You will come to Earth." There's such a, there is a fear and a reverence at the same time in that of, it's like a combination of, wow, this is my chance, but also like, like when, like when you're in high school and your parents are out of town and you find out they're coming back early and you're like, I got to get my room clean. (laughs) Like I got to get the the cans cleaned up. I got to (laughs) like, whatever, where it's, he's very clearly having a reaction to like, oh, wow, this just got real. Um, Mm -hmm. But also this is my chance. Like, this is what I've been begging for and even the emotion i think communicates so much of that backstory that that you were alluding to i love every part of it i feel like in terms of the effects these scenes are just far and away incredible uh achievements like just i i will hear i will hear peter guinness saying mighty steppenwolf <laughs> the like again we're not looking at these characters we're looking at weird molten metal stand-ins for them that make them look like burning statues molten statues that are having a scene together mm-hmm. and if i'm honest i don't even really register that most of the time because it's voice it, it is the voice is so clear cutting through all of it and we do get you know steppenwolf this is i think this is no coincidence that his it shall be so like this is the last of his section of this part it is it just totally cements everything that is driving him we we know where he is and we know why it makes him such a cool villain now we can get to what the actual point of this sequence is, which is this double dolly. <laughs> How many cameras? Four, four, so, four rotating? So Zach, when he posted the, like... Little hand drawing, Basically right? a storyboard or like a, um, yeah, like a hand drawing of how it worked. He said it was an eight camera beam splitter rig. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. Because there are four, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. This is a a shot that is incredibly complicated for the sake of wouldn't this be cool to do? I think that (laughs) when we get to this scene, everybody's going to look forward to this because this will be like Stephen's favorite weeks of the year um, when he gets to talk about this. And I think spend multiple minutes (laughs) talking about this. I know a lot of it will be like a lot of this stuff will only make sense when you see it. Like, as we're going along with it. But I'm going to give my best understanding of how I have put this into my brain in layman's terms. So, And you can tell me how accurate I am here. Yeah. Simple. Simple. There's a dolly track surrounding them in a big circle. And there are two cameras opposite each other. Two camera rigs opposite each other that are circling them with green screen around the front of the camera. So we're going to be able to edit out these cameras. But what we get to do is act out this entire scene from beginning to end. But what makes it... Incredibly interesting from a technical level, which we'll get into, with the use of a mirror, one camera in each rig pointed square at the action, and a if you imagine a um, one-way mirror or a two-way mirror being inserted at like a 45-degree angle in front of that camera. So someone looking down will have their vision directly reflected out and be looking at the exact same thing as that camera, but that camera won't be picking it up. One camera films straight head on, another camera placed directly above looking down at that mirror reflection with a different lens so that you are getting two identical shots 
simultaneously filmed with two completely different lenses, giving you for each camera rig two different versions of the of this scene from this shot that you can then switch between at will. What, is there anything that I have? I think that is the crux of what is cool about this for me. I think so. Yeah, I think what might help contextualize it a little bit. It's actually not the exact same technology because they they didn't do it in 300. But they were going to try to, but for technical reasons, had to do something similar but different. But in principle, it's the same way they did the speed ramping in the Leonidas charge. He used a high speed camera, which is how you do slow motion because you're just running through film way at a way higher frame rate and a and a, like a camera running at normal speed, then you're capturing identical footage at two different speeds, and that allows you to, like you said, switch between the two and and change up do, to do the literal speed ramping. For 300, the, because they were using film, the high-speed camera vibrated, which would shake the, the, the two-way mirror, and so they ended up just sticking the cameras right next to each other and then just fudging it when they, when they blended in post. This is this seems like in a way this is more lo-fi. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's all in-camera effects, and it's doing something doing something crazy simply by by just capturing more. And so I think what what Zach said was that the intent for this scene was he wanted the camera to always be in motion. And so if you think about the moment where it is in the movie and kind of what's going on, it's this high stakes Something's kind of building tense situation everybody's thinking everything is moving they can't stop moving like if you notice the camera then doesn't stop until it comes to rest on the image of superman and so they have the the dolly tracks and they also have a on a crane they have another camera that comes in that spirals in seamless without it being an actual tracking shot but if you pay attention to the way the camera moves like in space there are moments where you can't fully understand like where the camera is placed I still, even though I'm explaining all of this, don't know exactly what they did, but my my understanding is they basically just have enough coverage. It's like the equivalent of like if you make like a panorama on your phone, basically then use that data to create a virtual camera. Because you see it does stuff like it, it, it moves up and then it goes into Cyborg's eye, but then it's also like circling the mother box. I guess that's probably the short version, so I should leave it at that before I... <laughs> Yeah, the I mean it's a it's a the scene feels different and that's why when it finally comes to to stop it comes to rest on the image of Superman and that's when the camera stops moving which I think kind of communicates the reason Zach thought it was important for it to have a camera in motion. The cyborg portion of this uh, the again visually breathtaking exposition dump. Yeah. I don't have anything to say about that cuz that's like I'm going to go what side of Vic's face you see at different points and, and when he is portrayed in the version of the person he was and what that means because he is imagining himself in this reenactment, not as ha as he is. It's There's a whole lot there. Yeah. But I do love that the camera spins around and it's like, okay, we get the swell of the the music, the Hans Zimmer score come back in. And then, it's, and then the movie says, wait, Superman... He's a package deal. So there's no way we can get Superman back without cut to Lois getting a visit from Martha, which is going to be, we need Martha back too. Like this, or not, well, <laughs> yes, we do. Uh, but we need Lois back because Superman and Lois, it can't be one or the other. Right. A scene that I know I will enjoy breaking down the dialogue based on what we've seen of these characters and then... Placing all of that within the context of what is easily 
my favorite single image from this movie, my favorite two <laughs> seconds of, of film that Zack Snyder has ever, ever depicted. The door closing and Martha Kent revealing that she is, in fact, a Martian. <laughs> she, yes. she has been this whole time. Um, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess unclear. I would assume that this is, that we are to interpret it as this is not a visit from Martha Kent. This is a visit from John Jones. Yes. Slash Swanwick. Yeah, exactly. And I think, like you said, there's there's a lot about this part that we're going to break down minute by minute. I think the big things are kind of the talking points coming out of this are, A, why is it here at this moment in the movie? And I think you addressed that a little bit about how Lois and Superman are kind of a package deal. As he says, the world needs you too, Lois. Yeah, exactly. Almost almost as if he was capable of hearing the conversation being had. Yeah, well, that's the crazy thing is when you when we find out how this all plays out, you can't not wonder if he knew what the league was doing. And he was like, whoa, 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 you can't you can't go and get him if she's not around. Because what would have happened if she wasn't, you know, and we'll, I guess, talk about that more when we get there. But like she... Her being at Heroes Park the next morning is uh, kind of important. There's a lot of details I think that maybe are, should be left for for the minute by minute. But there, there's a question of why is this kind of where we introduce Martian Manhunter? It's kind of a for some people it seemed like left field to all of a sudden to include him here in this moment, but then also as a as a kind of a twist, and also that it takes away really one of the only significant dialogue moments that Martha has in the movie, which is, you know, it's one of those scenes that when you explain it or like look at it on paper, it's kind of like, that is kind of weird. But when you see where it fits in with the, like the fact that it happens in the middle of the scene where they're talking about bringing Superman back and the line that, um, that uh, Martian Manhunter or Swanwick says, um, but the world needs Lois to, like the fact that he says two is really fascinating because it almost breaks the fourth wall and acknowledging yep. that the team is over there talking about bringing Superman back. Um, how that doesn't like break continuity with Martha knowing things or not having to worry about Lois being like, so when you came to see me and not knowing what was going on. Uh, yeah, um, you know what? I feel like anyone who says that kind of stuff definitely does not have a mother of this age because I could bring up some of the most <laughs> heartfelt things my mother has ever said to me. And she would be like, yeah, okay. I don't <laughs> sure. I mean, that sounds like something I would say. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so it's not like, you know, if I said, if I was Lois and I said to my mom, you know, it was you coming to visit me and telling me that stuff that made me realize I needed to move on. The idea that my mother would say anything other than, well, I just wanted you to be happy is, is ridiculous, right? My mom was yeah. not thinking, did I? My mom would think, did I? I guess I, well, see, I guess I did that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I like that, you know, Swanwick knew he couldn't say it, right? It, it couldn't be him that brought Lois back. It had to be Martha. I feel yeah. like that does a lot for me. And, and I like their characters together anyway through BVS. So. Yeah, exactly. Well, and it also, I think it kind of flips that question from like, does this take away from Martha? And it instead adds, and yeah, sure. We're, yeah. Maybe we're not literally seeing her character here saying these lines at this time, but it, it is something that it acknowledges this, the importance of it being Martha, which is mm -hmm. almost more important than it being actually her that says it. She's a proud woman. Yeah. Uh, I don't understand. We do get the incredible 
I can't skip over Change Machine, that it is not a murder <laughs> murder machine. It is a change machine. Murder box. <laughs> yeah, murder box, right. Oh, well, yeah, right. He says smoke. Yeah. And oh, I always appreciate that. His vocal delivery in this whole scene is amazing. And his the, the way his face... That match, or it's not even quite a match cut, which is even better, but it's like a smash almost match cut from him in uh, looking at himself to his face where he says into this. He adds like an extra syllable to the end of his words, um, like his P's or his S's where it's like an extra little at the end. Yeah. And there's such a firmness in his jaw. Like, I think that this is some of the best acting Ray Fisher does the entire movie, um, which is saying a lot because it's all, I think he's obviously the standout. And boy, what a what a wild idea communicated really well. I'm, I'm still kind of astounded that anybody listening to that could think, oh, it can make a house out of the smoke. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that makes sense. And that leads the way, obviously. This is where we come back at the end of it to, we're going to bring Superman back. And the the most expected cut to black of the entire movie. This was the first one where I was like, oh, this is absolutely we're building to a a, a scene break here because this is just a... A crescendo of a type. Yeah, and I had that exact same note that I think I like all of the transitions. I think this is the best, the single best end of a chapter and beginning of a chapter <laughs> um, in the like in the movie in terms of cut to black, title card, and then, you know, the opening scene of the next part. Yeah, the opening line. Yeah. <laughs> I just like, yeah, I, the, uh, the last thing I have in my notes here is there is no us without him. And that's just a neat, um, a neat line that I think we'll obviously obsess over. Of all the exposition dumps in the movie, this is the closest it gets to just like, here's a bunch of words to explain what's happening. But it is simultaneously visually and performance and like phrasing is interesting enough, but also it, it hand waves enough to like, Okay, yeah, smoke into a house. We don't need more than that. These right? things like, are basically magic. Yeah, exactly. They're saying it's basically magic, but without without getting jokey or without getting where they're not talking about like tachyon particles or anything no, that's yeah. like, okay, guys, let's Essence. Yeah. Which yeah. which sets up what they're gonna use it for, obviously, really well. Because who in that group is gonna be like Oh, I don't know. How does it turn smoke into a house? This this half man, half machine that was made by a box is telling this to you, you're not going to be like, mm, I don't know. Can you explain how that works to me? Yeah, exactly. That's else. That's what it was. Particles of house become particles of smoke. Yeah. Smoke. That's what it was. Yeah. You got that, that K. And I think that, that the, the fact that it's called, they, they call it a change machine, I think goes into that same, like, no, that's just what, it, like it changes things. That's what it is. It, 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 yeah. t- it takes one thing and it makes it into another thing. It's the, the, the philosopher's stone, <laughs> but in you know, yeah, you just go with it. Yeah. If you're not, if you need more than that, then this next sequence is going to be a real problem. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so we won't get to that just yet. Uh, do you have anything else? That we no, I just love. Um, I just love in terms of vague. Let's hand wave away how we're going to resurrect Superman. I think the mother box can turn smoke back into a house is so much better than, but what if you were stronger than a planet? And with that, thank you for listening to part four. 
of our walkthrough Justice League before getting into the minute-by-minute minute breakdown, which which will be coming alongside BVS by the Minute. But both podcasts you can find on Twitter at JLByTheMinute and at BVSByTheMinute, and both podcasts you can find on the internet at SnyderMinute.com. You can support the podcast with your downloads or your endorsements to friends and family and loved ones. Strangers on the street, people at takeout windows, feel free. Uh, if you want to support the podcast with your dollars, you can go to patreon.com slash Snyder Minute, where we are going to be adding a lot more. Uh, we're realizing that our, our ramblings before recording are probably actually would be the kind of stuff that people would enjoy listening to as we talk about anything and everything in DC and otherwise. But uh, that's just a tease for what is coming. If you are a patron right now, you can listen to us talk about Lex Luthor's PE for a long time. You know, different different <laughs> strokes for different folks. But yeah, that will do it for, for part four. Uh, stay tuned for part five as we clip through this movie. And I will just say, Stephen, uh, there is no us without him, but there is no him without her. Yep. Interesting. They're change machines. The boxes don't think in terms of healing or killing. Alive are dead. A box has the power to reinstate anterior particle relationships. So you mean in the way that particles of matter can't be created or destroyed, their relations just transform? Burn down a house, the particles still exist. Particles of house become particles of smoke. I will say the break from BVS to do these has been really interesting. I'm really, I feel almost like it's going to be a different show when we go back to it, like the post-JL episodes. Change machine.